Well, as you guys are taking your seats, you can take your Bibles out to the passage that uh, Nathan just read. We're continuing our study through the book of Ephesians. And if you're new to the Mountain Church, uh, this is your first time visiting with us, what we like to do during our Sunday gatherings is preach through the Bible. And uh, I'm not, I don't think I'm, I'm very good at doing topical or I don't even know that's the best way to do it. So what we like to do is we pick a book and we work through the book verse by verse in sections. Uh, sometimes it will take us some months. Sometimes it might take us a year. Uh, if we ever get through John or Romans or some of those books, it might be a couple years. Uh, working through what the Bible teaches uh, verse by verse in that kind of manner. What we're looking at today is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. This is, I believe, one of the most rich, beautiful passages in the scriptures about the gospel. What is the gospel? Uh, what Jesus has saved us from and what we are saved to. And that's kind of the three points that we're looking at this morning. What are we saved from? What are we saved by? And what are we saved to? You're here this morning and you are a Christian or you, you know this passage really well. You might think, okay, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I've heard this a million times. Um, I'm just going to check out at this point. Please don't, right? Um, because what we'll get into in this passage, what I think Paul, why he writes it to a church, is to remind them of the gospel. And so uh, studying the gospel more deeply is how we mature, how we grow, how our affections for Jesus um, are grown as Christians. So like I said before, through our study through Ephesians, uh, this passage on itself could probably be a seven, eight-week series. There's so much in here. It's so rich. Uh, like I can't cover everything. What I'm going to do is cover some things that stood out to me, some things that I think uh, God has for us to apply this morning. But if you have any questions about something that's brought up in this passage, uh, you want something in more clarity, I would love to talk with you. Uh, please write your questions down on, on, a, on an outline if you have one. Uh, talk with Nathan or Will, gospel community leader, about your questions. They would love to talk with you about uh, any questions that you might have on this passage. So like I said, we're looking at three things. Uh, what we have been saved from, what we have been made alive from, how we have been made alive, and what we have been made alive to do. So with that being said, let's jump right into the passage. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, know that there's some provided for you um, out in this bar here. We'd love to even just give you one uh, as a gift. So uh, if you have your Bibles or if you have your phone, your app, whatever, uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Paul, right out of the gate, says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So what have we made, what have all those in Christ have been made alive from? Death in trespasses and sins. Now, I'm still waiting for someone in their testimony to use this kind of language. As I was reading through this, I was thinking, man, a lot of times when I share my testimony, it goes something like this. And maybe you have a similar testimony to mine, a similar story of how you met Jesus. Well, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I went to church, and then I believed in the gospel. That's not what Paul is getting at here. And that I, don't, I think it would be unhelpful for us to think about it in that way. How many of you have heard a testimony, or you've said this in your own testimony, I was dead in my trespasses and sins? Yeah, I might have grown up in a, a Christian home. I might have grown up in the church. I knew all the right, I might have been taught all the right things to say, but I was dead in my trespasses and sins. 
I would encourage us to start maybe thinking about it in that way or even using that language. This is language that Paul uses, this is language the Bible uses, probably pretty good language to use, right? Get some head nods or some amens or a yes. Paul says, you're dead in the trespasses in which you once walked. This word walk here is talking about living or behaving in a certain way. And Paul says, you were following the course of this world and following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit now that is at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a lot going on there. But Paul's right of the gate says, you're dead, trespasses and sins in which you once walked. The word dead, spiritually dead. No inclination for the things of God. Characterized by a lack of spiritual life, vigor, being completely indifferent towards the things of God. Maybe you're here this morning and the songs that we're singing or even right now as I'm talking about God, there's just nothing there. This might be an indication that you are spiritually dead. No appetite for God, no spiritual life for God. Paul says you might have been alive in the sense of you were breathing, you were eating, you were working, you were living, but you were dead. Now, when I, when I think about this, I think a good illustration to think about, a good way to think about this is kind of our, uh, within, it seems like within the last 15, 20 years, our kind of culture's uh, love our fascination with zombies. You guys notice this? A lot of movies, TV shows about zombies walking. I mean, it's even a show called The Walking Dead, right? And the whole idea of a zombie is it's someone who is, what are they, how do they describe it? Undead. Yes. Like the, the person who they once was is no longer there. And it's just kind of this uh, walking corpse. It doesn't, I don't know, it, it, I mean, the movies kind of portray it differently. Like you, you think about a movie like World War Z or some of those movies where zombies are portrayed like really rabid, uh, aggressive, quick little things. Are you kind of the more of the stereotypical zombie that, you know, the arms are kind of walking out like here and you're walking very slowly, desiring to feast on human flesh, right? Whatever it is. No? Somebody, okay, I don't... Anyways, zombies is important. I think it's, it's good for us to think about it in that way. Before you were in Christ, before you've been made alive, you are walking dead. The structure might be up, the house might be up, but there's no one living inside. Nothing there. No inclination, no responsiveness towards God, no ability to please God. And Paul says, you were, so you were dead in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now, our English word following is a little uh, weak compared to what the Greek following would mean. The Greek following would mean something more like controlled by, enslaved to. Following might think of, you know, follow me to Red Robin and, and we'll, I'll show you the way. You're not kind of like forced or obligated to, you're not controlled by me to go to Red Robin. But in the Greek, in what the original language, what Paul is saying is this, this is something that you're controlled by. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You're as helpless as a dead body. You're controlled, mastered, enslaved. And it seems like he's, he lists we're enslaved by three things. The world, the spirit, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, and the passions of the flesh. 
I want to break down what those three things mean. Number one, the world. The world system here consists of the values, beliefs, and morals that are in distinction and rebellion to God's. So not maybe like the, the, the globe, that's not what Paul is getting at here. The world is referring to things, the culture, the systems, the beliefs that are against God. And practically, I was just thinking about it this morning. I think a helpful thing for us to think about, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer, knowing that the world, the world systems, the values, the beliefs that are upheld in the world are against that of God. If you are here and you are a believer, it's important. We need to be careful that we watch what kind of intake we have from the world. I think it's important to know what's going on in our culture. It's important to know the lies and the truths the gospel, you could say, that our culture is preaching. But at the same time, we have to be careful of what kind of effect that is having on our life. I don't know about you, but in my own life, I've, I can see a direct correlation between the amount of time I spend on social media, the amount of time I spend uh, watching television, the amount of time I spend um, thinking about the things of the world versus uh, intake like feasting, marinating, saturating myself in the things of God, it's real. I think if we have children here this morning, we have to be careful about indoctrinating our kids in the things of this world. I don't think we can indoctrinate them in the things of Disney, the things of Nickelodeon, uh, overloading them with TV, the things of this world, and expect that they're going to love Jesus without the proper intake. Does that make sense? So we don't need to distance ourselves. We don't need to isolate ourselves in the world, but I think we need to be careful. What are we being taught? What are being indoctrinated in this world? Then he says, we're following the prince of the power of the air. This is a reference to the devil. Uh, as Christians, we believe that the devil is not some sort of fake cartoon, some sort of little scary thing uh, that's non-existent. We believe the devil is a real being, a supernatural being who is in control of this world. He is influencing the world. He is exercising a power over people in this world. So you get the sense, Paul saying you were dead in your trespass and sins. You were following uh, the world, the world who you could say led by Satan in the passions of the flesh. Now when Paul uses the word flesh here, he's talking not to our physical body, but to our human nature which our human nature, as the Bible describes, as being against God, sinful, self-indulgent, craving things uh, that are against God's will. Sin, you could be described as a preference to things other than God, rebellion to the things of God. Uh, this, this old guy named St. Augustine said that the human heart is curved in on itself. He uses this fa fancy Latin word that I can't really say. It's curved in and on itself. It's self-centered. It's looking inside. It's absorbed on itself. That's what it means to be a human apart from God. So if you're wondering this morning, what does it mean to be in the sin nature? What does it mean to be a sinner? What does it mean to be following the passions of our flesh? Primarily, I think it means your, everything that you do is about yourself. The center of your world is yourself. The center of who makes your decisions, uh, who, uh, who decides the things that you love, the things that you do, the things that you think about is yourself. Paul is saying that we all once lived in the passions of our self-centeredness. 
Our passions were not for God, we're not for holiness, we're not for the glory of God, we're not for the greatness of God, we're the greatness of self. This is why apart from God's grace, people in default will self-promote and self-protect at all costs. This is why relationships in the world, apart from Christ, apart from God's grace, are defined by either using others or being used by others. This is why there's abuse. This is why there's rape. This is why there's manipulation. This is why there's self-indulgence. It's because it's about self. People view each other to use them for the sake of my betterment. And at the center of this, this sin is, is me. And I just want to say, this leads to misery. I don't want you to hear this morning to know that uh, sin is a good thing. It does not lead to, to flourishing. It leads to miserable life. A life that is wrapped up, that's distorted on itself, is miserable and I think uh, what we're seeing in our society today is, is kind of proving of that. Like we, we live in a scientific culture now that kind of the, the underlying truth is it's all about you, right? Television, uh, music, the kind of the gospel of, our, of the United States is it's all about you. This is kind of what, even what we were founded on, Right? You, get, you can pursue happiness. I mean, that's what, that's what it's all about. Yet above any other country, America is at the top of the list for the most users of antidepressants. Like we are the saddest country. Do we think that there's a correlation there? Within the last 15 years, get this, within the last 15 years, antidepressant use in the U.S. has soared by 65%. So we can, I mean, we can believe the things of this world. We can get sucked into that gospel, but in the end, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to lead to misery if you're not miserable already. C.S. Lewis was this great uh, English-British philosopher. He, he wrote the fact that there is nothing more miserable than self-centeredness. There's nothing more enslaving than self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is actually hell. It's so miserable and agonizing. It's hell begun in you that will eventually take you to hell because it'll take you toward the person you're becoming like, which is Satan. I mean, wow, that's good, isn't it? You you want to read it again? I kind of want to read it again. (laughs) There is nothing more enslaving than self-centeredness. Self-centeredness is actually hell. It's so miserable and agonizing. It's begun, it's hell begun in you that will eventually take you to hell because it'll take you to the person you're becoming like, which is Satan. Now we look at those first three verses and go, wow, that's a great way to start a sermon, Daniel. I mean, we're, what, 10 minutes, 15 minutes in? Really feeling good about ourselves. I want to remind you that Paul's writing this letter to the saints in Ephesus. So he's writing this letter to Christians, people who would have known this, people who responded to this message in faith as Paul preached it. Maybe are people under Paul that he discipled that shared the gospel with them. 
And I was thinking, okay, why is, why is Paul reminding the church in Ephesus about this? I mean, this kind of seems like, you know, right in your opening chapter two, it's a right, just a punch to the mouth. He's coming right at you. You're dead in your trespasses and sins. You are following Satan, the world, the passion of the flesh. You are by nature children of wrath. The strong language that Paul is using. Why is, he, why is he reminding them of their deadness in sin? It kind of seems like almost out of nowhere too, when you think about what Paul had said earlier in chapter one, remind you that he kind of greets the church. Uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints are in Ephesus, grace and peace is his blessing. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in him with every spiritual blessing. He starts listing off all these spiritual blessings. We've been chosen, we've been redeemed, we've been sealed. Then Paul has this beautiful prayer at the end of chapter one. I pray that God would enlighten your eyes, that you would know him, that you know the hope of your calling, the power uh, that is in Christ, these beautiful things that he's saying. Then right at the gate in chapter two, punch to the mouth, you're dead in your sins. Why, did he, why is he going there? Why is he saying that? I think Paul's reminding the, the Ephesian saints of their former deadness in sin to get them to see the grace of God more deeply, for them to see how radical it was, how scandalous the grace of God is, what their life was like before Christ so that it would actually grow their love for God. This is why at the Mountain Church, I like to talk about sin a lot. And in fact, I've jokingly said, and I do honestly mean this, I like to be reminded that I'm a sinner. Because what it does is it refocuses me on my need for grace. And what I found in my own life is the more that I dig actually into my sin, the more I lean into or press into understanding sin, confessing sin, trying to hate it and get rid of it, the more I love Jesus. The more I love God, the more I, I, I cherish the grace of God. Jesus actually tells a story like this uh, in Luke chapter 7. Luke describes a, a dinner where Jesus is invited to a house of a Pharisee. Jesus is sitting around this table with a bunch of Pharisees and in comes this woman of the street, a prostitute. So while, you know, back in Jesus' time, they used to recline at the table. So they kind of, they'd kind of sit on one arm with their feet kind of behind them and they'd sit in a circle. And this woman comes up behind Jesus and she starts uh, anointing his feet with tears. She's just weeping at Jesus' feet, wiping uh, her tears on his feet. And the Pharisees, the, the religious elites of that time, the leader said, uh, they were thinking, they said to themselves, if Jesus, if this man was really a prophet, he wouldn't allow a woman like this to be touching him for she is a sinner. That's what the Pharisees say. Jesus says in verse 40, Simon, I have something to say, or Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to say to you. The guy says, say it, teacher. And Jesus tells a story. He says, a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said, you have judged rightly. And Jesus turns to Simon, this Pharisee, and says, did you see this woman? I entered your house. You give me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that she has come in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. 
You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. For he who is forgiven little loves little. So we don't talk about sin at the Mountain Church to make you feel bad because we somehow uh, like to hammer you or uh, make you feel guilty. We talk about sin because when we understand sin, when we know our sin, when we can, are aware of it and can, are able to confess it, we understand the grace of God that much more. So I think an implication from this passage, from this story that Jesus tells in, in Luke 7 is, if you're struggling right now in your faith, if you're looking at your own affections for God and they're small, like you, you, you look at it and you say, man, I, I don't really love God. Or I kind of love God, but I really love uh, all these other things more than him. I think where we can start is sin. How have your, how have your confession, confessional life been? Are you aware regularly of your sin and confessing it? Do you know how sinful you really are, how wicked you really are? I think Paul starts off with talking about being dead in sin in this way because the following uh, prayer in, in Ephesians chapter 3, 16 through 17 and 19, and as Paul progresses throughout the letter, he's talking about this is how you were called, this is the life that you were to live, this is the way that you are to live now, which is in contrast to how you used to live. So Paul's talking about the sin that they lived in. You were dead in sins. You were following the course of this air because all throughout this letter, he contrasts it to how they're to walk now. So we'll read and we'll see throughout this letter to the church of Ephesus that Paul is constantly calling them to, that's not how you learn Christ. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Walk in a way that you have called to walk, not in a way that you used to walk. So Paul's setting up this contrast to remind the saints that they were no longer in the darkness. They should be walking in the light. They should live in the reality of who they are. He is reminding them of their former identity and how different that is from who they are now in Christ. Does that make sense? I think that's what Paul is getting at here. How the gospel should affect your life. Because that's what Paul gets at uh, as, as we move throughout the letter. He starts with the gospel and then he starts talking about how it should apply to our life, how it should work out tangibly in the life of our faith. Before we get on to verses four through nine, uh, many of you, I, I know kind of the, the spiritual climate of this church. I, I've talked with many, know many of you well. I would say a lot of you probably have heard this passage. You know this passage. You're familiar with this passage. And like I said before, the temptation might be, okay, I get it. For by grace you've been saved through faith, this is not of yourself. Okay, I've, I've heard that. And it's kind of a, a common lie that I think in a, in a lot of churches and even pastors preach a gospel that says, well, the gospel is just something that saves you, but then it's up to you, your obedience to rules to really mature as a Christian. And if you had kind of heard a message like that, or maybe you used to think like that, the gospel was just kind of the, the door, but then it was up to me to kind of walk through the Christian faith and, and find these new things that I'm supposed to, to do. No one? Th that's, that, was, that was my uh, belief for a long time. Every time I would hear the gospel, I would check out because I'd think, well, that's just really for those pagan sinners. I already believe the gospel. Anyone? 
Yeah, I was there. And like I said, it's very common in the church to think that the gospel is for non-Christians. Uh, one needs to be saved, but once saved, you go through hard work and obedience. And that is not in line with what the scriptures teach. That is not in line with what Paul says. Uh, many people have said, and I believe this, that the main problem in the Christian life is, is that we have not thought out the deep implications of the gospel. We have not, quote, used the gospel in and on all parts of life. So if your temptation this morning is to hear this passage or as we work through it, to start to check out, yeah, I know this passage. The problem, I think, is not that you know it. The problem is that you think you know it. You think that there's nothing more to learn here. There's, there's nothing more to, uh, to, to teach me here. I mean, I already, I already get that. I believe that. But I believe the Christian life is not about finding more deep truths, but of finding that this one truth, this gospel, more deeply. This is how we grow. A guy named Richard Lovelace says like this, that most people's problems are just a failure to be oriented to the gospel, a failure to grasp it and believe it through and through. Martin Luther said, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. He says, most necessary is therefore that we should know this article well, teach it into others, and beat it into our heads continually. I love that image. Timothy Keller says it like this, all of us to some degree live around the truth of the gospel, but do not, quote, get it. So the key to continual and deeper spiritual renewal and revival is continually rediscovering the gospel. The discovery of new implication or application, seeing more of its truth, is an important stage of any renewal. He says the gospel is not just the ABC, but the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom, but the way we make progress in the kingdom. When we come to this passage, this is a passage that we can really sink our teeth into and marinate on and think about a long time because as we do this, this is how our affections are stirred. As we drive the gospel deeper into our hearts, that is how we mature as believers. That is how we grow in Christ-likeness. And this is what, this is now the good part of what Paul gets to in, in this passage. So you might have been dead, you were enslaved to the world, to the flesh, to the devil, but God being rich in mercy. Remember that key idea of richness in Ephesus, very rich city, very wealthy. They loved uh, how rich they were. They boasted in it. And Paul's continually reminding them, God is richer, God is better. You are richer in Christ. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So you were hopeless, and now you have hope. You were dead, and now Jesus has made you alive. So second point, all in Christ are made alive by grace through faith. All, you've been dead to sin, and now you're alive by Jesus' grace. Paul says we've been made alive, we've been raised up with Christ. People in the, in the ancient world in Rome would have been very familiar with this, this illustration, this image, this idea, because when a, a hero, a conquering hero, would, a victor would come back from battle that he had won, he'd come into his town, there'd be a great procession, uh, procession. procession, thank you, great procession coming in, and he would get 
uh, kind of to be honored, he would get to sit at the right hand of the king. That was the greatest place of honor. That's where he would sit as the victor, as the conqueror. And what Paul is saying is that Jesus is there at the right hand and you're there too. So you were dead in your sins. You were against God, a rebellion, in rebellion to God. You were enslaved to your flesh, to the world, to Satan. And now you're with God at the right hand with Jesus. Paul is saying that in Christ, we have been raised to share in his victory. We are seated with Christ. He says, by grace, you have been saved. For you have been, for verse eight, excuse me, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now in the language, uh, the gift there is actually in reference to both grace and faith. So both the faith that God has given you and his grace are gifts, not deserved. He kind of even makes it more clear for us. Not a result of works. Verse nine. So Christian, we know you are saved by God's sheer grace, not a result of works. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. From this, our last point, we see that all in Christ are made alive for good works. There's a lot of different misunderstandings, a lot of different temptations, uh, lies that we can believe in regards to the gospel. Some of you might in here right now might be believing that I am too wicked I am too sinful. I have done too many wrong things for God to love me. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Some of you in here might be thinking, I'm really not that bad. I'm not really a sinner. Jesus kind of deserved to save me. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Some of us might in here be thinking, well, I'm saved, but man, that feels good to be saved. Thanks, Jesus. And there is no fervor for good works. There is no uh, Christian work ethic to do things that are honoring of God. We kind of just, we might not proclaim it or articulate it in this way, but we really think that we were saved because we were special and we can just sit at our little, sit in our homes and be comfortable and just wait for Jesus to come back or wait for God to call us back by killing us or taking our life or. By pa- Thank you. And that is a lie. Some of us in here might be, might be thinking that it was all about my good works. And if I just do enough good works, God will like me, God will accept me, God will love me. And that is wrong. Paul is saying you're saved by grace through faith to do good works. So we are Christ's workmanship. The word there is poema, where we get the word poem. It means that we are God's, we are, he is crafting us. We are his artwork that he is forming. What this means is that you in Christ are God's 
artwork. You have been crafted with your gifts, with your talents, with your position, with your strengths, even with your weaknesses to glorify him, to do good works. And Paul says, we created in Christ Jesus four good works, which God prepared before them that we should walk in them. In other words, a proper understanding of the gospel should not lead to laziness. God's grace is not some sort of covering, enabling, uh, cover-up. It's a transformative power. The gospel does not make us complacent, lazy people. It leads to a passion for obedience, a passion for good works. The Bible talks about in 1 Timothy 5.10 that as Christians, we are to have a reputation for good works. 1 Timothy 6.18 says we are to be rich in good works. Titus 2.7 says we are to be a present model of good works. Titus 3.8 and 14 says we're to vote themselves, devote ourselves to good works. Hebrews 10.24 says we're to stir up each other to good works. Jesus' own brother James says it like this, for faith by itself, it does not have works, is dead. James 2.26, for the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. John 14, 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. This is what led uh, pastors, the ancient reformers would say this. Uh, we are saved alone by grace alone, through faith alone, but not, a, that, not a, with a faith that does not remain alone. I don't know if that made sense. I feel like I could sum all my words. We're saved by grace through faith alone, but that faith is not to remain alone. In other words, a, a, a proof that someone has been transformed by the gospel is good works, is transformation. Paul says we are his workmanship. And although it, it, the beautiful image here of God uh, kind of viewing us as his artwork that he's crafting, that he's working together, the Bible does say that we have an active, intentional part to play in this, in our sanctification and becoming more like Jesus in doing. In fact, Paul lists out commands uh, on how we are to walk and all throughout the book of Ephesians and Colossians 2.6, he says, as you've received Christ, so walk in Christ. So as Christians, we do the commandments not for salvation, but because we are saved. We obey God because we are his children, not to somehow earn uh, the right to be his child. Doing good work is a sign, in fact, that we are saved. Paul says it like this when he writes to Titus. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly possessions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purity for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So it's the same idea, saved to do good works. Right? It's like, just like thunder follows lightning, good works follow true salvation. So when I, read, when I read through these passages, when I was doing study on this, made alive for good works, 
we're redeemed. God created us a people zealous for good works that we should walk in them. My initial thought is, what are these good works? I want to know what they are so that I can do them, right? I mean, if this is why I'm saved, if Jesus saved me for good works, what are those that I should do them? You guys tracking with me on that? Like, what are these works that we're to do? I mean, if we're, if we're saved, if we're in Christ, then we want to honor him. We want to live for him. We want to do what he asks of us. So we want to do these good works. What are they? So what I do, I type on my computer. What does the Bible say about good works? Look in my study Bible. What does the Bible say about good works? Look in my Bible, good works. And I think my kind of religious mind, where I want to go, I want to make this list and just check them all off and make sure, okay, well, if I'm doing all the good works, then I'm good, right? Because <laughs> what I found in the scriptures is there no, there's not a definitive list of this is what good works are. I really wanted to find one of those so that I could just feel good about myself, I think, right? Well, as Christians, we're supposed to do this and this and this and this and this. But I found some definitions of good works that I thought were helpful, and I, I kind of crafted my own definition, working definition of good works that I wanted to share with you. Uh, Wayne Grudem, who wrote the book Systematic Theology, says, what is good? Good is what God approves. Uh, the Easton's Bible Dictionary says, works are good only when, number one, they spring from the principle of love to God. Faith and love are at the heart of the essential elements of all true obedience. Hence, good works only spring from a believing heart. Two, good works have the glory of God as their object. And three, they have the revealed uh, will of God as their only true rule. Uh, John Piper says like this, without limiting their scope, the Bible means, uh, he talks about good works, helping people in need, especially those possessed least and suffer most. For example, the Bible says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help the cases of urgent need. Christ died to make us this kind of people, passionate to help the poor and the perishing. It is the best life, no matter what the cost. They get the help, we get the joy, God gets the glory. So uh, in light of this and what the scriptures teach about good works, my kind of definition, our working definition of doing good works means obeying the works uh, the deeds, the activities, the duties that God has commanded in the scriptures in the way that God has commanded us to think, feel, and do for the glory of God. So it means obeying God, honor, honoring God by God-honoring thoughts, affections, and actions ultimately for the glory of God. Now, when I think about it in that way, it's like there is no set definition of good works in that sense. It could be everything, right? Right? A lot of things. I think in my mind, how I, when I first thought about it, I said, okay, well, what are these good works? I want to make sure that I'm doing them so that I'm okay. But it's about everything that you do. The way that you work, the way that you go to your job, doing good works means doing so in a way that is God honoring in thought, in emotion, and in action. Some examples of this would be giving generously, both sacrificially and joyfully to those in need. Giving yourself to others in service. Example would be proclaiming the ex excellencies of God boldly, accurately, and graciously to all people. Devote yourself to good work. What's some of the best works that we can do? Talk about Jesus. Proclaim his name. 
lead others to Jesus. Another example of doing good works is being fervent in prayers. Paul says, offer prayers for all people at all times. It sounds daunting, doesn't it? Sounds like a lot. But I love how Paul kind of throws in this uh, this comforting uh, assurance for us. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Like God has prepared good works for us to do. Now there is the balance of of our our part, our intentionality, because Paul says we should walk in them. We can't think, well, God prepared them beforehand and we will walk in them. Like it's just automatically going to happen. There's a there's an obedience. There's a there's a uh, a active part that we must play in doing these good works. So let's talk about application this morning. In light of this passage in Ephesians two one through ten, what are some things that we can do right now uh, because of it? some ways that we can put this into practice. I don't think it's important for me to stand up here and preach this book and leave you with, wow, that was a lot of good information. Hopefully you're not leaving on Sundays thinking, wow, that was boring. Hopefully you're not thinking, wow, well, I mean, I kind of understood what he was saying, but how do I, I mean, what was the point? How do I, how do, I do it? This is what we should do when we study the scriptures. Hopefully, what I'm trying to do for us as a church is teaching you how to study the scriptures. So we see, what did Paul say to the, what did it mean to the original audience? What are some principles that we can glean from this passage? And how do we put it into our life? So that's what we're going to do. I, got, I think I got five things, I think. There might be some extras in there. Number one, well, beforehand. Before I say this to those who are in Christ, I, I do have to say, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, the best way that you can apply this passage is to put your faith in Jesus. Amen. Before we talk about, okay, what are some things that I, that I do? Primarily, meet Jesus. Repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus. Turn from your flesh, turn from the world, turn from Satan, and trust in Jesus. So I, I needed to say that because, uh, anyways. Number one, what about for those who are in Christ? What do we do? Number one, I think we should press in to our understanding of sin, confess regularly, and be open with our sins to fellow brothers and sisters. I don't think that we could apply this passage the best by... Uh, trying to hide our sins, trying to cover up our sins, um, trying to justify or rationalize, well, we're not really that bad. I don't, I don't want other people to have a negative view of me. If I talk about my sin, I mean, my sin is really bad. We should press into our understanding of sin, confess regularly, and be open with our sins to our fellow brothers and sisters. We do this not to feel guilty or shameful, but to delight in the grace of God. Do you have someone in your life, maybe even outside of your family, in your gospel community, uh, someone that is close to you, that you confess sins regularly to? Can you think, maybe a better question would be, can you think of the last time you confessed a sin? 
Now, I don't know, I don't think I'm more wicked than you guys. Um, I need to confess a sin all the time. I'm selfish, I'm prideful, I'm self-absorbed, I'm lazy, I'm callous. My affections for God are often very puny. I talk about this all the time. I'd rather do other things. I have sins of commission that I'm acting out of a rebellion to God's word, but I also have sins of omission. I don't do things that I know I should. Those are still sins that we should confess of. There's freedom in that. Along these lines, I think we should grow in the hatred for sin because the more we grow in the understanding of it, the more we grow in, uh, we should grow in the hatred of it because we realize the negative effects that it has on our life, the misery that it brings us. The worst lie that we can believe is, well, this sin isn't very harmful. Well, Daniel, you can look at this pornographic image because it's not really affecting anyone else. Two, we should identify and communicate with others how the world, Satan, and the flesh tries to trip us up. So we're confessing sins, but then we should also be communicating with those, uh, our spouse, people in our gospel community, people that we're in relationship with. What are some things that are kind of uh, trip-ups that have been for us. Like I think Satan's not all-knowing, he's not all-powerful, but he does know uh, the past. He does know uh, what you've struggled with, and what I've seen in my life is he'll use that to continue to try to trip me up. Like I had in high school and, uh, yeah, throughout high school, I had, a, I had a pretty bad addiction to pornography. And when Jesus saved me, he, by his grace, he removed that from me. He removed those images, the, the addiction that I had. But when, uh, when I am stressed, when I'm feeling discouraged, when I'm feeling lonely, that is one of the first things that Satan will try to tempt me with. No one's going to know, Daniel. You can just open up a, a hidden browser on your phone. No one's going to know. We should be identifying what are those things in your life. Maybe it's your past uh, shame, uh, belittlement from others, abuse from others that Satan tries to use to define you, to beat you down. Maybe you feel guilty or you're too dirty, you're pure and pure. You start to believe that God really doesn't love you. You're not good enough. Uh, you're not worthy enough. Maybe you used to be a really lazy person, so the temptation is to fall back into that laziness. Maybe you start to believe that I'm not really saved for good works, I'm just saved to sit. Maybe you struggle with being a people pleaser. Maybe you struggle with anger. Maybe you don't know what it is. I would love to talk with you and, and, and work through this with you. I will, and Nate, we'd love to do the same with you. Process through this for your good. I think we should allow friends and community to regularly remind us of the truths of God. So on the same line, we're making people aware of in our life kind of the ways in which we used to be tripped up, the ways in which we used to live, the ways in which uh, we were enslaved, miserable. We should be 
not only making people aware of what those are, but people in our life that are going to remind us of the truths of God. So kind of a defense and then an, an offense for us. So people in our life that are saying, Daniel, Jesus is more satisfying than porn. Daniel, the approval of God is all that you need. You don't need the approval of us. You don't need the approval of man. Jesus has given you his approval in the gospel. People in your life that say, Daniel, God has worked in you so that you are his servant. He's called you to himself to do good works. You're super lazy right now. You're living in a reality that is saying the gospel is God saved me because I was good and now I just, I uh, don't really have a part to play in doing things for other people. It's all about me. You need people in your life that are going to speak the truth that your past shame, your abuse, the belittlement that others gave you does not define you. Jesus took your shame when he went to the cross. Now, because of Christ, when he looks at you, he looks at his child, his son and daughter with perfect uh, approval and acceptance because of Christ. Do you have people in your life that do this? They, uh, they will defend for you and they will attack for you. Number three. In light of this passage, I think that Christians will be, should be, the most gracious, patient people, especially those with those who are outside of the faith. Practically, I think what this means is that we shouldn't be shocked by the sin of others. If we really, if we really understand what Paul is saying here, we are by nature children of wrath. By nature, we were sinners then really we should be kind of shocked at how like God allows them to do good things. Like they're not like, like completely evil, <laughs> you know? Does that make sense? I mean, it's kind of like uh, going to a weed and getting frustrated that it's not giving you oranges. <coughs> it's just not going to do it. It's a weed. That's the nature. It's a weed. Practically, this means that we won't be self-righteous. We won't have a spugness that, that says, I'm, I'm better than you. Sadly, when I talk with people that are outside of, of Christianity, outside of, of faith in the gospel, one of the things that they bring up most is, well, I'm not in church because people are so self-righteous. They're so self-absorbed. They're so judgmental. God, just wipe us off Des Moines if this is the reputation that we get, right? I don't want to be smug. I don't want to be pompous. I don't want to be self-righteous. Like we're better than those people out there. When we think about the only difference between us and them in that sense is what? Not our ability, not our superior intellectualism, not our moral superiority, we were somehow born less sinful. It is sheerly the grace of God. Nothing else. This means that we will be humble. We will be honest with even those outside of the faith about our sin. I think one of the best witnesses, testimonies to the gospel that we can have with people in our workplace, with people in our community, is to be confessing to them even. Like you go to a coworker, hey man, last week I was really stressed. I was really angry and I, I took that out. Maybe even on you. I've been really impatient lately. Will you forgive me? 
Jesus, was, Jesus has been so patient with me in my life, and I, I failed to reflect that to you. Would you forgive me? That's one of the best things I think we can, that's even one of the even best ways to share the gospel. Doesn't mean we should excuse their sin. It doesn't mean that uh, we enable their sin, but it does mean that it should, we should, it should lead us to approach them with humility and grace. Number four, I think in light of this passions, we will be urgent in our interactions with those outside of Christ. So we'll be patient, but we'll be urgent. We'll be honest with them. Because we know, the passage says, before that you were in Christ, you were a child of wrath. Like that's, you were in misery, you were caught up in yourself, and you're destined for hell. An eternity of no enjoyment. Eternity of no good things ever. Like for us, we can't even fathom what that's like because God is so gracious and, and patient with us. Right? I mean, just think, I was thinking about this this week. Think of the reality that God allows both those who believe that he is God and those who reject him, who flip him the bird, who hate him. He allows all people to enjoy a sunset. No one deserves to enjoy a sunset. That's his grace. Think about it. He allows all people to enjoy food. He's so gracious with us. He allows people who are, well, maybe we'll say that one. We can't even imagine a life of no happiness, of zero pleasure because of the grace of God. We should be uh, truthful and honest with those about what is to come. Lastly, five. We should be laser focused on doing good works. As a church, I think we should be some of the most hardworking, service-oriented people. This is what God saved us to do. Good works, works that God approves us, works that point others to the glory of God, works that flow from an understanding of the gospel and a gratitude of thanks for his kindness towards us. So this week, one of the best ways that you can uh, practically apply this principle is regularly ask yourself this question. Is this something that God approves of? Is what I am about to do something that God approves of? Is what I am thinking right now something that God would approve of? Is what I am feeling right now something of what God would approve of? Is what I'm about to watch on TV something that God would approve of? Is it stirring my affections for God? Is what I'm about to do a stirring my affections for God? Is it growing my passions for God or is it growing my passions for the flesh? Will this good work, will this help people believe in Jesus? One pastor said it like this, and I'll end with this, this challenge, this exhortation for us. Be a people zealous for good deeds. Be a people who are not enslaved to worldly comforts, but who consider it more blessed to give than to receive. Be a people who dream not about the comforts of bigger salaries or days of vacation and retirement, but who dream about how many different and creative ways we can make a name for the glory of the grace of God in this city and around the world. Let's pray.
Yes, Father, we do ask that you would make us a people who are zealous for good works. Father, I ask now that uh, this would be a time as we respond to this word, we respond to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, that your spirit would, would show us areas of our heart, areas of our life in which we have not allowed the gospel to go deeply. I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and, and reveal to us sin that we have in our hearts. Sin that is holding us back, sin that is enslaving us, sin that is discouraging us, sin that is leading us to misery. And I ask that we would confess that and remind ourselves, proclaim the truths that are true of who you are. You are better. You are more satisfying. You are all that we need. You are the source of all pleasure. You are the source of all satisfaction. You are my joy. You are my happiness. Apart from you, I have no good. Father, I ask now that if there are those in this room this morning who do not know you, who are, are stuck in misery, they're stuck in enslavement, they're depressed, they're discouraged, they're constantly trying to find things that will satisfy them, but some, somehow everything seems to fall short. It, it's not lasting, it's not uh, satisfying. I thank you for your grace and showing them this, and would you call them to yourself and show them what you've been looking for, what you've been striving for, what you've been searching for is me, and I will show you now what it means to truly be alive. I thank you, Father, for making us alive in you, and would you equip us now to, to be the people that you've called us to be who are passionate about doing good works that you've prepared for us. Would we do this with excitement, uh, with anticipation, and with boldness. Amen.